0: There's a joy so full, even laughter so pure. There's a smile for every heart. That's how... He had to have a go went back there and have a talk with that mic and <laughs> get it straight, <laughs> the microphone. Yes, Lord, we thank you. We bless your holy name. I sensed his presence moving in this place and the, well, the beautiful group was worshiping and you were and as I was singing. So I just want to encourage you that some of the best times of worship are on the Sundays, but it's even sometimes better on Monday morning, I want to share a song called The Worshipper. I open my eyes in the morning, I'm looking for you, I'm looking for you. I open my eyes in the morning, I'm looking for you, my Lord. And I fall on my knees in the morning I'm falling for you I keep falling for you I fall on my knees in the morning I'm falling for you, my Lord For you have made me to enjoy your presence in my life You are the one that I fall on my knees in the morning. I'm falling for you. I keep falling for you. I fall on my knees in the morning. I'm falling for you, my Lord. And I'll sing you a song all the day long. I'm singing for you. Can you hear me singing for you? I'll sing you a song all the day long. I'm singing for you, my You have made me to enjoy Your presence in my life And you are the one that I adore You're what I'm waking up You're what I'm smiling You're what I'm singing for Then I can fall on my face in the evening Can hardly believe Can hardly believe all on my face in the evening I can hardly believe you're so good Ooh, Lord can hardly believe you're so good Then I cry a while in the nighttime I cry for the world I cry for the world I cry a while in the I know they're crying, I feel them crying I know you're crying too
1: amen good morning everybody let's start this over we still can't get the mic working not sure what it is but we'll try to make this work that that be all right all right praise the lord let's pray father we thank you for your goodness and your mercy we thank you father for the privilege that we have to read and study your word we thank you lord That every word you spoke to us is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. So we thank you for watching over your word to perform it in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. If you've been around here for any length of time, you know that a couple of years ago, the Lord opened my eyes to something in the word that I've read probably thousands of times, but never saw. And that was the kingdom of God. Now, I've always assumed, or did up until that point in time, I assumed that the kingdom of God was just this nebulous term that meant anything and everything related to God. But when I saw that Jesus asked his disciples... It's in Luke chapter 7, and it's also in Matthew chapter 18. Who do men say that I am? They responded, as you may recall, some say you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist, who had already been beheaded by Herod at that time. And then he turned it around and said, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered for the group, I suppose he answered for the group, and he said, Now the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, it was divine revelation. Now, that story perplexed me when I began to see some things. Because I always assumed that the disciples went out and told everybody that Jesus was the Messiah. How many of you thought that? That's pretty common, right? Or it would be a pretty common thought. But if Jesus is, is having them preach that he's the Messiah, then why is he asking them, who do you say that I am? Wouldn't their response be, if that's what they did, if they went out and preached Jesus was the Christ, wouldn't their response been something like, well, you're the Messiah, just like you told us? But that's not the case. It took divine revelation, according to what Jesus said to Peter, it took divine revelation for Peter to, to understand that all the miracles that he'd seen and this was right at the end of Jesus' ministry here on the Earth, very shortly before he went to Jerusalem and went to the cross. And everything that they'd seen, all the miracles that they had witnessed, all the healings that took place, none of that was because they preached that Jesus was the Christ, not a bit. Now the only definition we've got of the Kingdom of God, Jesus gave it to us in Matthew chapter 6. You may remember that the uh, disciples came to Jesus and said, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, why don't you teach us to pray? And so he gave them what the church world knows as the Lord's Prayer, but it really wasn't the Lord's Prayer, it was the the disciples' prayer. And it says, it starts in uh, verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then the next thing he says in verse 10 is, Thy kingdom come, which means it hadn't come yet. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the only thing we've got to go on is the definition that Jesus gave of the kingdom of God, which is where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. Now, folks, how unsure are we of how things are in heaven? Anybody curious about whether there's sickness in heaven? Anybody wondering whether there's enough to go around so that everybody has plenty and no no lack or no poverty or anything like that? Is that a question about heaven? In 31 years of pastoring this church, I've never really had anybody ask me any questions about what heaven is like. Now, there have been the odd things here and there, but nothing really substantial or or serious. Because we know what God has for us in heaven. We know that it's a place where there's no hurt or harm. It's a place where no tears are to be shed. It's a place of joy. Well, doesn't the Bible say God is the same? That he never changes? So why would God want something different from you here than he wants for you there? Now, folks, I had never thought about it in those terms. I'm I'm sad to say I I reached too old an age before I got to seeing things in this manner. Before I, I really realized this. But if you think about it, and it makes perfect sense. If you think about how God created the earth before man fell, he created the kingdom of God here on the earth. Before sin entered the scene, there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. There was no unrighteousness in any form whatsoever. There was no sickness or disease. God made a perfect world. And it was perfect and stayed perfect until man fell in sin. Well, when he put man in the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, that literally means an exact copy of himself. And he tells us why he put him in the middle of the garden. He said, and let him have authority over the earth. Man was created for one and only one reason, and that is to have authority on the earth. And as long as he kept sin at bay, as long as he obeyed God, that continued to be the kingdom of God. But we know that sin messed everything up. We know that sin brought spiritual death upon all mankind, and mankind has been held in spiritual death, bondage to spiritual death, until Jesus came But did that change God's plan? God can't change. He said it best in the Old Testament of himself. He said, I am God, I change not. Well, that answers all the questions for me. How about you? So however God is now in heaven is how he is towards you in the earth, as far as his will and as far as his desire is concerned. Now, in Luke chapter 9, let's start in verse 1. It said, Then he called his twelve disciples together, And gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now folks, here's part of the problem that I had with the disciples. When Jesus is uh, having the last supper with his disciples, not all of them believed he was the Christ. Certainly Judas didn't. But remember when he starts talking to them about the things ahead, Philip says, Lord, if you'll show us the Father, we'll know know to believe you. And Jesus says, don't you realize after all this time, Philip, he that's seen me has seen the Father? Thomas said he didn't know where he was going when Jesus said, I'm going away and you know where and then I'll come back. Thomas, I believe, was the one that said, I may have these two mixed up, but Philip and Thomas are the two that are identified One of them says, we don't know where you're going. And the other says, we don't know what the Father is like. And Jesus says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead, he upbraids these disciples for their unbelief. Well, if that's the case, then what would these guys be trusted to preach? See, folks, as a minister of the gospel, as somebody that, that knows that God has commissioned him to do something. I take qualifications for ministry really, really serious. I don't want to put anybody in a ministry position in this church that's not qualified and not experienced. The Bible teaches that. It says don't put a novice in office. Let somebody be proven first. Well, how are you proven? Through time. And the idea that Jesus is going to turn loose these 12 guys that can't find their way around in the dark and trust them to tell the cities the good things of God didn't make sense to me look at Luke chapter 8 back up just a chapter and let me show you something else this is talking about Jesus verse 1 and it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. I want you to see that Jesus preached and taught and revealed, showed what the kingdom of God was all about. And that's why there's so much in the Bible and the four gospels about Jesus' healing ministry. He's revealing. Healing is the kingdom of God. Let me show you something else. Look with me to... uh, Oh, uh, where we want to go? Look with me to ch- back to chapter 9 again, verse 10, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. And the apostles, when they re- were returned, remember the first part we read, he told them to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal the sick. And the apostles, when they returned, told him all that they had done, and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed it. And he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. Look with me to chapter 10. Verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face, into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Then he gives them certain instructions. Skip down with me to verse 8. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are sent before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, notice the connection he makes to healing, and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now nigh just means near. Now the nearness he's talking about is time. He's saying the kingdom of God is soon to come. Colossians 1.13 tells us it already has come for us that Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Well, what would the kingdom of Jesus be if not the kingdom of God? So there in the Old Testament, the disciples were taught to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Now the kingdom has come. Just like Jesus said. Just like Jesus told them to preach that the kingdom is nigh or near unto them. Well, once he was uh, crucified and raised from the dead, now the kingdom of God has come. Look with me over to Acts chapter 1. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. That's why I read these scriptures from his gospel. And, And Luke was... The book of Luke is interesting in a couple of respects. But one way in particular... In the uh, ancient historical writings of the church, early church fathers stuff, some of these men would have overlapped. They would have been the second generation of people that were, uh, well, uh, that walked with Jesus from the disciples and so forth. Luke was one of those second generation people. And it says of Luke, the historical documents say of Luke that he researched and scrutinized. He was uh, the third of the four Gospels to be written. John's Gospel was written many, many years later, some 60 years later than, uh, than the others. But Luke's Gospel was understood to be, or Luke was specifically understood, to be so meticulous and so detailed that he interviewed people that were uh, involved in the events of the Gospels that the Gospels identified. He interviewed these people to get first-hand accounts And so the the Gospel of Luke carried a lot of weight with the early church. Now that's not to throw off on the others and say they didn't do just as good a job. But Luke took it so seriously and apparently he was inspired by the Holy Ghost to do it that 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 was widely known about his Gospel. Well the same thing would be true with the book of Acts. He was there when most of these things happened in the book of Acts that he wrote about because he was part of Paul's company, not the early years. So some of the earlier chapters he wouldn't have been witness to. But many of the things later on he was. So in Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus was raised from the dead. Luke says, The former treatise I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's in reference to his gospel, the gospel of Luke. Until the day in which he was taken up. After that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs and being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What did he tell them? He didn't tell them just the same things that they had heard in the gospels. Now things have changed greatly. The kingdom of God has come. So the things pertaining to the kingdom that he talked to them about had to be the things that belonged to them now because they were in Christ. Right? Look to Acts chapter 8. Beginning in verse 5 it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Notice it doesn't say anything about any blind guys being healed. Apparently, Philip had a gift of healing in the area of crippling conditions, people with palsies. And apparently there was something about his ministry where the anointing was on him to cast out devils, too. And notice it says many that were taken with palsies. doesn't say everybody. It says many. Folks, just because someone doesn't receive does not discount the power of God that's available to everybody. Let's keep reading verse 9. There was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. Notice what Philip preached. Now, Philip's an evangelist. He's the only, play, only uh, individual that we've got in the New Testament that uh, is identified as an evangelist. Doesn't mean there were, weren't other people, but Philip is the, is the model that we have for an evangelist. Now, Philip's model, assuming that's been given to us by the Holy Ghost, which of course he is, it is, Philip's model is to preach the name of Jesus with certain signs or supernatural gifts following. That's what it said he did. But notice he preached Two things, things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Look with me now to Acts chapter, uh, let's skip to chapter 19, I'll just show you a couple of these real quick. And it came to pass, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard there be any Holy Ghost. and Paul said unto them, under what then were you baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Paul mistook these guys because of their lifestyle. He mistook them for being Christians. But all they've heard about is John the Baptist. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Paul preached the kingdom of God. Paul's preaching is all about the kingdom of God. Let me read to you from chapter 20. Paul sends for the elders at the church at Ephesus and tells them that he's not going to see them anymore. We'll start in verse 22 and it says, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save or accept that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now notice verse 25. And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Now we know that he spent three and a half years in Ephesus before he left and before the Holy Ghost told him to go to Jerusalem. Actually it was at Ephesus where uh, uh, the Holy Ghost did speak to him and tell him to go to Jerusalem and spoke to him about uh, being taken captive by the Jews and appealing to Caesar and so forth. So Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, for the three and a half years I was with you, I preached the kingdom of God. I preached the kingdom of God. Now what is Paul's message? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. (sighs) Now, folks, we could take this thing apart word by word. And it is so rich, it is so full, it is so overwhelming about the goodness of God. But a couple of things, we won't do that for the sake of time, but a couple of things I want you to to see. I want you to notice that it says twice in there about being predestinated. The word predestined or the word predestinate literally means to foreknow or to foreordain. Now there's a lot of people in the church world today that believes that God's picking winners and losers and that can't be so that's impossible to be so the fact is the Bible says that it's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth and as such he has predestined all of mankind to be born again he has predestined all of mankind to be saved by the blood of Jesus if that were not true, then the Bible would be a lie where it says Jesus died for the sins of the world. It would have to say Jesus died for the sins of the winners or the lucky ones or the sins of the chosen. <clears throat> There's no way in the world that God could desire or will for all of mankind to be saved <coughs> and pick winners and losers. No way. If that were the case, we'd be serving a schizophrenic God. On one hand, He wants everybody to be saved. On the other hand, He's picking and choosing. God has picked everybody. He has chosen everybody. He's predestined everybody to be born into the family of God. But what determines that, the will of God or the will of man? Jesus said, Whosoever will come to me, let him come. He didn't say, Whosoever God has chosen to come to me, then He will come. It's man's will not God's will. But I want you to notice how much different the the letter is that Paul writes to the Ephesian church as compared to the one that he wrote to the Romans. See the Roman church was a church that wasn't started by him, wasn't founded by him. It was most probably founded or began by his disciples, people that had been discipled in his ministry. But Paul had never been to Rome. He told us very specifically when he wrote the letter, that he wanted to come to them several times but wasn't able to. And as such, the book of Romans, to a people that Paul never, uh, never ministered to, the book of Romans goes into a lot more detail about individual things where the, the letter written to the Ephesians is more of a complete overview of our Christian life. But Paul had to talk to the Romans about being made righteous even though your body wants to rebel against righteousness. Righteousness even though your body wants to continue in sin. He tells us a lot that he doesn't tell any other church, which to me means he's trying to make sure they're founded on the right doctrine. And this is what he would have taught them or would have preached to them if he had come in in the flesh. But not so with the Ephesians. With the Ephesians, he knows what they've been taught. He knows what he founded the church on. Now, as a result of all the things that he's mentioned about the redeeming power of God, about being redeemed in the blood of Jesus, about being accepted in the beloved, and so forth. That brings him to a prayer in verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, now, folks, can I ask you something? Didn't they receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of them in the uh, verses that we read in chapter nineteen? When Paul came to Ephesus, the church was founded on those twelve people. Didn't they receive the wisdom and the revelation of Jesus then and get uh, give their lives to Him and be baptized in the name of Jesus? Isn't this something that they have already begun in? Please recognize that the spirit of wisdom and revelation is not just a one-time thing. It's not just a one-subject thing. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him is necessary for you and me every day of our lives to grow spiritually. I mentioned the, uh, the situation when I began to see some things about the kingdom of God several years back. I had read through scriptures concerning the kingdom of God no telling how many times. But I never saw it. I've read the Lord's Prayer thousands of times. Been in churches where they quoted the Lord's Prayer many, many times. And I never saw it. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God is something that we need to seek, pursue, confess, and hold ourselves hard to. Because without it, we'll never be who God wants us to be. These are people that are saved. These are people that have been redeemed. These are people that have been taught by Paul. They've seen signs and wonders in their midst. Acts chapter 19, for example, talks about how the seven sons of Siva went to go cast out devils. And they came to somebody that was demon-possessed and said, We adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of him. And the evil spirit in that man said well Jesus we know and Paul we know but who are you? And the evil spirit that was in that man influenced him to jump on these seven guys, beat them silly, strip their clothes off and leave them running down the road. And everybody in the church heard about it. Everybody in the city heard about it. And as a result of that it showed them that the power of God that Paul was preaching, the name of Jesus that Paul was preaching, was something they needed to give heed to, and as a result, they put away all the idol worship and all the uh, other tokens and statues and all the other occult things that they had going in their life. Apparently, before then, Christianity was just one of the things that they believed in, but as a result of that experience, that happening, they put all those other things away. They destroyed and burned the, the tokens that they had and the occult things that they had, and the price of it was, in today's dollars, many millions of dollars. And Paul's praying for him to have the spirit of wisdom and Revelation. Therefore, after I heard it, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding. Some translations say the eyes of your spirit. Being opened or enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Second thing he's praying for him to have. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God is first. That our spiritual eyes would be opened. That we would know what is the hope of our calling. Is the second. And the third is. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now here's the fourth thing that he asked for. Verse 19. Verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. According to the working of his mighty power. Now folks, I want to focus on the last one. And that is the power of God. There are four words in this verse uh, 19. There are four words in this verse 19 that mean power. Paul uses four different Greek words talking about the power of God. It is without question the most powerful scripture in all the Bible. The first word he uses for power is the word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. It's talking about supernatural endowment, divine gift. The second word that he uses is the word working. It's translated the word working, and that's the word for energy. The third word is the word mighty. That's the word kratos. It speaks of strength and might. The last is the word power, and it's the word iskus, and it means force. Paul uses every word known to that culture, every word in the Greek language, he uses to identify the power of God that works in you. There's no opportunity for anybody to say, well, yeah, he, he said that he gave us dunamis, but he didn't give us that energia. He gave you everything that there is. And it tells us what that power is like. It tells us what that power did. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. In other words, it's saying this power that works in you is the same resurrecting power that raised Jesus from the dead And set him at his own right hand. At God's own right hand. That's what this power is that resides in you. Now folks do you remember without having to turn back to it. I think it's uh, Luke chapter 7 verse 28. When Jesus starts talking about John the Baptist. He said there has never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now if John is the greatest prophet of the old covenant, that means John's message and we don't have any record that John did any miracles, but that means his message about Jesus coming was greater than the miracles that Elijah and Elisha did. It was greater than the, than the miracles that Moses performed with either the plagues of Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea. Or striking the rock and enough water poured out for millions of people to be satisfied. Jesus said, John the Baptist, again, because of his message, it has to be. But because of his message was greater than any of the other Old Testament prophets. It was greater than Daniel's prophes- uh, prophecies about the end time. He was greater than Isaiah's prophecies to the kings of Israel and other nations that surrounded them. John the Baptist was the greatest because he was the one that pointed the way to Jesus. So in God's mind, in God's estimation, the message of Jesus is greater than any physical miracle or sign or wonder that's ever been done. And you're greater than John. Why are we greater than John? What makes us greater than John? Well, we just read here that the power of God, the resurrection power of God raised Jesus from the dead. That has to be spiritual death, not natural death. Jesus was not the firstborn from physical death. Jesus himself raised several people from the dead during his earthly ministry. There are occasions in the, even in the Old Testament where people were raised from the dead. So it can't be physical death that Jesus was the firstborn from. It has to be spiritual death. Spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God, was that which was conquered by the display of God's power. All four characteristics and attributes of God's power. And it raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in heavenly places. Now I'm going to keep reading into verse 22, or verse 21 rather. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's great. That's great information. But beginning with verse 21 down to the end of the chapter, that's all parenthetical information. In other words, I'm going to read it without that information, that qualifying information, in the middle, and see what he's trying to say. Let's start in verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his mighty power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 1, and you. King James says, and you has he quickened. Now, folks, you know as well as I do, Paul did not write this in chapter and verse. Chapter 2 doesn't mean he's on to another thought. Rather, he's completing the thought. And that thought is the power of God which was wrought in Christ is the power that raised him from the dead and did two things. It raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, God's own right hand in heavenly places, and then he continues in chapter 2 to tell us that the same things happened to us. And you. Hath he quickened or made alive? But again, notice that's in italics in the King James. It literally just says, And you. Well, and you what? And you were raised at the same time Jesus was. You were raised from spiritual death just as Jesus was raised from spiritual death. You were made alive unto God just like Jesus was made alive unto God. Now, folks. I get it. I understand that this is a point that a lot of people just go tilt over. A lot of people just cannot accept the fact that Jesus died spiritually. But if Jesus didn't die spiritually, and spiritual death is the punishment for your sin and mine, somebody still has to die spiritually. But if Jesus died as your substitute, if he died in your place, then he died the death that you would have died without him. Well, where would we have gone without Jesus? We'd gone to hell. That means Jesus had to go for us. Now, I know that a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea that God died. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Word made flesh, died spiritually. But if he didn't, as I said before, somebody still has to. If he didn't take spiritual death on himself for you, then you still have to pay the price. The wages of sin is death. And that's not talking about physical death. The wages of sin is spiritual death. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, the thing that came on them was spiritual death, not physical death. They didn't die for 930 years after. It took 930 years for physical death to overcome the life of God that was in their bodies, even though they had fallen. So the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead raised you too. Let's keep reading. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation or manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together by Christ. Now, folks, again, verses 2 through 5 have great information. We could take these things apart, as I said, and look at the words the, and do word studies about what these words, Greek words mean and, and come up with a great blessing. But it's just a rabbit trail from Paul's mainline thought. So, I'm going to back up again. I'm going to back up and read it in the way that Paul wants us to see it, or that the Holy Ghost wants us to see it, I really should say. I'm going to start in verse 15 of chapter 1 again and read through, taking out the parenthetical information. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, Chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 6. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. That's how it reads if you take away the other information. Paul being a preacher took rabbit trails even when he wrote. But if you do away with the rabbit trails, and I'm not saying it's not good information. I'm not saying we shouldn't study it. We should But I think a lot of times when we read this stuff in its full context, we become overwhelmed with it and fail to realize the reality of what he's saying. He's saying the the power of God, these four characteristics of the power of God were put on display to raise Jesus from the dead and to seat him at his own right hand, at God's right hand. In the same way, in the same manner, and at the same exact time, that power of God, when it was put on display to to raise Jesus from the dead, raised you from spiritual death. And at the same time that Jesus was raised to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, you've been raised to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. Obviously, it's talking about position. It's not talking about reality. It's not talking about physical reality. It's talking about the position that we have. But the position that we have in Christ Jesus, and folks, that's everything about Paul's message. When Paul talks about how he preached the gospel of of the kingdom of God, everything about Paul's message is who we are in Christ. And rightly so, because Jesus said the least in the kingdom of God is greater than any of the Old Testament prophets regarding their message. See, our message is greater than John's message. John's message is there's one coming after me. Our message is there's one in me. You remember in Luke chapter 10, We read the first part of the chapter where it says Jesus sent the the 70 out. He gave them certain instructions. I think we skipped down to about verse 6. Where he said, Into whatsoever city you go, if they receive you, heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, The kingdom of God is near. Well, in chapter 10, verse 17, it tells us about when they came back. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Now, if you look at the instructions he gave those 70, there wasn't a word said about casting out devils but they're using the name of Jesus and they're talking about the kingdom of God in such a way that they came upon certain devils people that were possessed or influenced with devils they used it on them like I'm sure they'd seen Jesus do before and those evil spirits came out. You remember what Jesus responded? Jesus said I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven he's not talking about when you went out I saw him fall he's saying He fell, and the whole reason he was in the earth and available to tempt Adam and Eve was because he's already been a defeated foe. He and his one-third of the angels were cast out of heaven when they raised up in rebellion against God. So he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. I am certain that he hit with a big boom. And then he said this. He said, Behold, I give unto you authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now why is that power available? Why is that authority given unto man? Because it was God's original plan. The devil and the presence of spiritual death through Adam and Eve's transgression was not enough to stop God's original plan. It never has been, never will be. God and the devil are not equals locked in a giant tug of war just waiting for one to gain an advantage over the other the devil is not in God's class no way even close but do you remember what Jesus went on to say after he said behold I gave you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you the very next thing he said was this he said notwithstanding rejoice not that the devils are subject unto you but because your names are written in heaven What is he saying that the thing to focus on is about? Relationship with God through Jesus. It's our relationship with God that makes us greater than any of the Old Testament prophets. It's our relationship with God that gives us a greater message than the Old Testament prophets. And Paul is simply praying that our eyes would be open to see what that power is. I remember Brother Hagen telling about his experience. Many of you may not have heard his testimony, so let me run through it real quick. He was born very premature, he weighed only a pound when he was born. The reason he was born premature or so premature is because his mother was malnourished. And she was so much at the point of starvation that her body rebelled against the baby that was growing on the inside of her, and so he was born. I don't know what the the weak number would be, but it was not nearly enough. And he was born with a deformed heart. His organs, many of his internal organs had not developed because he was so premature. He had an incurable blood disease. The doctors, really the doctors thought that he died at birth, but he didn't. They finally detected, a. uh, his grandmother detected a sign of life, and so they wrapped him up and tried to take care of him. But with all the things that were wrong with him, the doctors told him, told his family, that the chances of him living to age seventeen were just nearly zero. So when he was fifteen, he became totally bedfast. There were times and different things that he described where he would just black out, come to in weird situations, weird places, and stuff like that, not knowing what had happened and so he was a uh, he said that the the school was scared to death of this guy they were just afraid every teacher was afraid he was going to fall dead any moment in their class well he spent 16 months bedfast or bedridden and during that time the holy ghost taught him about the subject of faith he began reading the word looking for the answer and god by the holy ghost nobody else was around to teach him he learned by himself and on his own about receiving healing by faith and so he did and the power of God came upon him and raised him up but he still had a deformed heart and he still had the blood disease and he still had some of the other problems and so here he is approaching his 17th birthday and he's healed but he's tremendously frail and weak he said that at the time that he was healed he weighed weighed only 89 pounds Now, over the next number of years, five or six years, he put on some weight, but even when he was married at age 22, he only weighed 130 pounds. So we're talking about a guy that was super frail, super light, without much strength whatsoever. You know, I I think most people in Brother Hagin's situation would have died. And I think that's one reason that made his ministry so effective is because he had experienced something that matched anybody's problem or severity or critical nature regarding sickness and disease and God still brought him through. Well, he said, he told the story that the first uh, summer after he was healed, he's still real small, real light, real frail. And some of the things, the, the power of God did not instantly heal everything about his body. And so he got a job. The only job he could find was with a tree farm. And he said this tree farm had an a, a orchard of peach trees. And they were all about two years old, or the ones that they would uh, provide for sale were about two years old. And so his job was to dig up two-year-old peach trees. Now, folks, if you've ever tried to dig up a tree that's got any kind of root system in it whatsoever, that's about the hardest work you can do. And here's this frail guy pulling peach trees. And he said there were some other guys, bigger guys, stockier guys, that bragged about their strength and their size and so forth. But Brother Hagen said that every day, every morning when he'd go to work, he'd show up at work, thinking, I can't do this. I can't take this another day. Surely everybody would understand if I backed out and quit the job because of my history and my background and the things that are going on in my body. But he said every morning, just as we'd get to the workplace, he said, I'd pray, and I'd say, Lord, I ask you to give me strength to get through the day. And he said there would be a strength that would come down on him just like if he through a coat over his shoulders. He said that strength carried him through to the end of the day. And as soon as he left work, he would collapse. That strength would be gone. But the strength of God is there for us when we put a demand on it. And this is what I think a lot of people miss. I learned a lot from Brother Hagen and have applied it in my own situation over the last several years. But I think a lot of people determine that they're not going to go. They determine that they're going to take it easy on themselves. They determine that they're not going to push it. And as a result, there's no sustaining power of God that's necessary. See, the sustaining power of God is only necessary when you do what you would have done that you think your strength won't allow you to do. Did that make sense? I hope so. I don't think I can say that again. But if you don't put a demand on the power of God If you don't have a need for the power of God Through the the steps you're taking If you're not going to act like you've got strength You're not going to have strength Let me tell you another story good friend of mine and best Rick Renner over in Moscow He's got a church in Moscow Doing a fabulous work to reach the country He even has state approval For his church he said there was a, he told me uh, just, well, last year, I guess it was. He told about a, a girl in his church. She's an elite athlete. I think she's a triathlete. And she had uh, come up with some kind of, or come down with some kind of disease. I don't exactly remember what the details were, but it was a very painful thing for her. And she went to God to receive healing. And the Lord spoke to her. The Holy Ghost spoke to her and said train for your healing well she knew what that meant i wouldn't have known what that meant if the lord said that to me would you but she understood exactly what it meant the lord was telling her train like you're well well the next triathlete or whatever it was triathlon whatever uh, event it was that was next up and coming up was several months away so she began training just like she was going to run in this triathlete uh, or Competed in this triathlon. Every step she took, every exercise she did, her body would be racked with pain. But she would claim the power of God. She'd say, Lord, you told me to train for this thing. And so she kept after it, training day after day after day. Every morning she'd get up, begin her training exercise, reminding the Lord of what He said. She assumed, like the rest of us would assume, that somewhere along this way there'd be some power of God that came down upon her and healed her of this disease. But until that happened, she kept going day after day after day after day after day. Finally, the day for the triathlon came. She was entered into it. She began the race. And when she finished that triathlon... She finished healed by the power of God. I don't think she even knew when exactly it happened. But it was during the event. While she was training. Folks there is something about. The power of God. Particularly the healing power of God. You've got to recognize. That there are a lot of ways to be be healed. There are a lot of ways to receive your healing. Healing. What I mean by that is, Brother Hagen, for example, laid hands on the sick, he had a tangible anointing, a special anointing to heal the sick, and there were a lot of people that were healed that way. There are a lot of people that have been healed just by hearing the word. There are a lot of people that are healed by just laying hands on folks in faith. And there are some situations, like in John chapter 5, where there's a, a move of God or a healing move of God that's initiated by God, not the individual. Now, that's the way most everybody would like it because there's no responsibility, no standing in faith, no, well, no pressure on us because we don't have anything to do with it. But there's always a way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 says something like this. It says, God will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able to bear, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. Now, a lot of people read that and think God and the devil are working hand in hand. That God won't allow the devil to to put more on you than you can handle. Well, the picture I always draw from that is like a dog on a leash. And the attitude is, or the, the plan of God is, He'll let it chew your ankle but not eat your leg. That's not the God we serve. That's not the good Heavenly Father that we've been born into the family of. It simply means this. There is no temptation that you're not able to handle. There is nothing the devil can throw at you. There is nothing the devil can use against you that's greater than the power of God that's already in you. That's why Paul prayed by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that we'd know what the power is. If we know what the power is, if we come to the understanding of what the power is, we don't have any problem with the devil from that point forward. Doesn't mean he won't attack us. Doesn't mean that we're exempt from uh, his temptation or his influence or whatever. Whatever. It just means we know that the power is enough to to take us through, to bring us out. But there's always a way. And the way for you might not be the same way for me. It's all based on the word. It has to be based on the word. But the Lord didn't tell me to train for my healing like he did the other girl. You see what I'm trying to say? There's always a way. And you have to come to terms with the way that God has for you. I know part of the situation that I've had and part of the uh, work of the enemy against me, against my mind with this thing over the last several years. I know there was a specific period of time, uh, or well it lasted about six months, where the devil was really trying to push on me that God wasn't acting fair toward me. That I had stood in faith, that I had believed God, that I haven't wavered. And still wasn't seeing results And God just wasn't being fair Even Brother Hagin Believing God for his healing He had the power of God fall on him He talked about how the power of God After he had taken a step of faith And gotten out of the bed on his own By faith How that the power of God hit him in the top of the head And oozed down over the rest of his body And he was standing strong when it got to the floor Well I've never had that And the devil worked really really hard on me trying to make me believe that God wasn't being fair, that my way to receive my healing wasn't fair. Well, fair or not, thank God he gave me a way. Now I know that some people will say, well, Pastor Mike, you're not healed. We can tell you're not healed because your hand still shakes. Folks, the only thing left of this thing is nuisance symptoms. My debating mind is back. I lost that for a long time. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. No, it doesn't matter if you clap or not. My point is very simply this, folks. If if our eyes are open to who we are, well, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I'll just close with this. Romans chapter 8. You've been raised from the dead just like Jesus was. You've been seated at the right hand of God just like Jesus is. You don't have a similar resurrection than Jesus. You have the same one. The Bible says Jesus was raised from the dead in Romans chapter 4 verse, what, 26? Something like that. It says that Jesus was raised from the dead when we were justified. Your resurrection was his resurrection. His death was your death. His seating at the right hand of God is yours as well. I'm going to start in verse 31. Paul said, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That word if is the word sense. Since God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Do you see the question he's asking? He's saying, what would God not be willing to give you since he's already given you his son? Jesus is the best that he has. The other stuff is just fluff. Why would God withhold any good thing from us when he's already given us his son? The reality is he's given us all good things through the work of his son. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? In other words, who's going to condemn you? It's God that justifies you, and he did it through the blood of Jesus. Who is he that condemneth you? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also, also makes intercession for us. Do you realize what he's saying? Do you realize the question he's asking? He's saying, who can condemn you since the blood of Jesus has already brought you out of condemnation? That's what Paul identified and realized at the first part of this chapter. He talks about his own struggle between his spirit and his flesh in chapter 7. Chapter 8, he comes to the realization there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. And he comes back to it. Who can condemn you since the blood of Jesus was shed for you? The blood of Jesus being shed for you, you being born into the family of God, very simply means that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. No equivocation, no question about it. It's done. So who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You know what that means? God makes intercession, Jesus makes intercession for us. A lot of people think intercession always means prayer. If Jesus is praying for you at the right hand of the Father, that means the work's not finished. But the fact that he's seated means the work is finished. So the intercession is not praying for you. It's his presence at God's right hand. That's the proof that you've been made the righteousness of God in him. He's there for all to see, and he is your proof that you're righteous and you're worthy to be in God's family. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Are any of those things great enough to take you out of the things that Jesus purchased for you? No, they're not. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37. Nay, in all these things, in tribulation, test trials, afflictions, in distress, tragedy, or persecution, or famine, poverty, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So what should we do? We should recognize that the power of God is available to us in any situation that the devil brings any of these things or anything else he's got against us. And all we have to do is live and operate as if the power of God had delivered us from it and the power of God will deliver us from it. And that's the kingdom of God. That's where God's will is done in your life On earth, just like it will be in heaven. Any resistance in heaven? Folks, you better learn how to operate in faith here because there's no resistance in heaven. There's no question that if you don't learn faith here, you're going to have to learn it there because God's the God of faith, whether it's here or there. No question you're going to have to learn it, but it's easier to learn when there's resistance. I have no idea how God's going to teach people faith in heaven. But I do know that faith is available here and it's mandated for us to walk in the kingdom of God. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Not in some of these things, not in one of these things, not in one thing for you and one thing for you and one thing for you and another thing for me. In all these things. And, folks, I believe this is just a representative list. I think that it means the same thing if there's any other thing that's not mentioned here that's of the devil, that the devil would use against us. In all those things too, we're more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors? Because the power it overcomes is already in you. Because the explosive power of God, the authoritative power of God, the energy power of God, the force power of God... Every bit of that is on the inside of you and has been ever since Jesus was raised from the dead. All you have to do is use it. All you have to do is use it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised us. That same power that set Jesus at your right hand Set us at your right hand. When you look at us, Father, you see that we're in Christ. We thank you, Father, that you've called us to praise and glory. That a part of the hope of our calling is victory. A part of the hope of our calling is the glory of God to be seen upon us. As your children, as your family. Satan, we serve notice on you. Our eyes are now being opened. The eyes of our spirits are being opened to see who we are in Christ Jesus. To see the reality that you are a defeated foe, just like Jesus said. The reality that there's nothing that you can do that can stop us from experiencing and living in the kingdom of God now on this earth. Thank you, Father. That we are more than conquerors, victorious in every respect. In Jesus' precious name. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Let's all stand. Before we go, let's lift our hands and thank God one more time for all that he's done for us. Thank you, Father. There's no condemnation to us that the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Thank you, Father that we are more than conquerors in Jesus' name. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great day.